This evening I'd like to uh, speak about the maturing of spiritual practice and the maturing of our wisdom. Um, it's actually going to be one of the themes in this teacher's gathering as well. Um, now that people have been involved in spiritual practice in this country, certainly following B- Buddhist um, meditations and so forth, for 10, 20, 30 or more years, um, what are wise ways to, to continue to practice and nurture our compassion and understanding? Um, and what works really well in this culture that's different perhaps than we would find in the East? And in the earlier part of this year, in the winter and spring, we went through a whole series of the traditional teachings, um, the foundations of Buddhist practice, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and so forth. The question becomes, how do we mature with that in ourselves? Let me ask you just a, a simple question first. How many of you have been involved in some systematic way with meditation practice or some other ongoing spiritual practice for more than 10 years? Raise your hand. Probably half the room, something like that. And the others, um, maybe it's two years or three years or five years. When we speak of a spiritual practice, in the Buddhist tradition, some of the common teachings are the practices of mindful attention, the practices of forgiveness, the practices of letting go and allowing a kind of inner freedom of heart to come. Yet if we take the rich tradition of practice of the Eastern cultures and of the ancient wisdom, it's easy to swallow them whole and lose a sense of our own inner knowing, lose our our own Dharma wisdom. We take them at first and use them, cultivate mindfulness and follow the principles of the Eightfold Path, if we might, or of um, the practices of the Brahma-viharas of equanimity and compassion and loving-kindness. But if we do it in the wrong way, it can become a kind of imitation, as Chogyam Trumpa wrote about in his book on spiritual materialism. He wrote, we've come here to learn about spirituality, and while I trust the genuine quality of this search, we must question deeply its nature. The problem is that ego can convert anything to its own use, even spirituality. Ego is constantly attempting to acquire and apply the teachings of spirituality for our own benefit. So if we hear the teachings of renunciation, we attempt renunciation, we attempt to mimic renunciation. We go through the motions, make the appropriate gestures, So outwardly we look spiritual, but inwardly it's difficult to actually let go of our habitual ways of doing things. So a kind of imitation of spirituality. And there are all different ways that we can imitate spiritual practice, but the fundamental idea is to become the Buddha ourselves. To mature to see and know for ourself was the instruction by the Buddha 
to the Kalamas when he went to a, a village where there were many, many questions about how one should practice wisely. And he said, my friends, Kalamas, the way you should practice is this. You should decide not by what you've heard, nor by following conventions, nor assuming it to be so because you have seen it followed by others, nor relying on sacred texts or because of reasoning or logic or thinking or acquiescing your views to certain elders that you prefer. But when you see and know for yourself that certain things are unskillful, those things when entered into and undertaken inclined toward harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. And when you see and know for yourself, these things are skillful, healthy, when entered into and undertaken, inclined toward welfare and blessings and happiness, these you should practice and stay with and nurture in your life. So this really becomes our task as we mature, to learn to see with a kind of wisdom of our own heart. Let me give some examples of the kind of understanding that's necessary if we examine the spiritual path. Rumi, that wonderful Persian mystic and poet, speaks about self and self-will. He says, because of willfulness, people sit in jail. From willfulness, the trap bird's wings are tied. From willfulness, the fish fish sizzles in the skillet. Put aside self-will and free yourself from it. This is his instruction. Another similar instruction is given in the teachings of the Dalai Lama. He often will speak of um, the, the teachings from his lineage, from Tsongkhapa, of exchanging oneself for others and releasing one's self-cherishing attitude. And it goes even more, um, more explicitly in that direction when you hear a sage like Shantideva, who says in, um, in uh, his text on the Bodhisattva's way of life, for whatever wholesome deeds one has done that have been accumulated over thousands of eons, all can be destroyed in one moment of anger. Don't let yourself be angry for a moment or you can destroy lifetimes, eons of good deeds. That's what he says. (laughs) Now, is it true? It's a good question, isn't it? Do we believe that? This from the Zen um, patriarchs, um, he says the way... The true way is perfect like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. The great way then is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Abandon both attachment and hatred and everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. So here are some very profound and Um, frequently taught Buddhist texts. And they point to something that's possible for us as human beings, a kind of freedom that comes from stepping back 
and releasing our identity with struggle, with anger, with how we want things to be, with self-cherishing, and finding an equanimity or an openness with whatever arises. Releasing our preferences, letting go of love and hate is one translation, or attachment and aversion. And it gets even more extreme. Two stories. Nagarjuna, the great um, and famous Buddhist sage, where is this? Um, walked around um, wearing just a loincloth. He carried, however, a golden begging bowl which was given to him by the king, who was his disciple. One night, as he was about to sleep in the ruins of an ancient monastery, he noticed a thief lurking nearby. Here, take this, said Nagarjuna, holding out the golden bowl. That way you won't disturb me once I've fallen asleep. <laughs> the thief eagerly grabbed the bowl and made off, but returned the next morning with the bowl and a request. He said, when you gave that bowl so freely with laughter last night, you made me feel very poor indeed. Teach me how to acquire the riches that make this kind of light-hearted detachment possible. One more story, go a little bit further. In the lifetime before he became the Buddha, which is called the Mahajati, the great birth before the Buddha, it said the Buddha was a, was a prince who became a king, and he was so generous that whenever anyone came and wanted something, he just gave it to them. Well, after a while, it didn't really work to be the king who gave away anything that anyone asks. And the people in the kingdom, while they admired him in some way, finally drove him out of the palace because there was nothing left. He'd given it away. And he went into the forest to till a little piece of land and live very simply with his wife and his two children. And then a man came along and said, I'm very poor and I have no one to till my land or no one to help me. Or another person came and said, I'm very sick. And he said, well, my wife will go and take care of you and gave his wife away. My children, they will till your land for you. Um, until he gave even his family away. I think that this was the lifetime before he became the Buddha because both it shows the perfection, the possibility of generosity to the highest extreme, but also quite simply because he went overboard, don't you think? <laughs> That's why he wasn't the Buddha in that lifetime. <laughs> What are the ideals that we set up for ourselves? I remember being at my teacher Ajahn Chah's monastery and sometimes he would seem very detached and let go of everything. And other times he would get very fussy about the discipline and the way the monastery was run and how we should do it. And he would contradict himself all the time. And I got very upset with him one day and I said, you know, you're so contradictory and you do this and that and you don't seem so enlightened to me. <laughs> He laughed. He said, yeah, that's, that's pretty funny. He said, it's a really actually quite good. I said, yeah, how come? I was sort of in that mood, you know, questioning the teacher, which one doesn't do in Asia. He said, because if I appeared enlightened to you, you would still be caught in thinking that the Buddha can be found outside of yourself. And he's simply not out here. That's the wrong place. Now go back and meditate some more. <laughs> In Tibet, there's a saying that your guru should live three valleys away. 
And these aren't little valleys. <clears throat> a valley in Tibet is separated by huge mountain ranges and many days of travel. And it's said that your guru should live three valleys away because <clears throat> that is the perfect place to learn wisdom from your guru and worship them in the, in the most ideal uh, relationship. It's neither too close nor too far. Norman Fisher, recently the abbot of San Francisco Zen Center, puts it this way, <clears throat> explaining the difference between ideals and reality. Ideals are reflections of our deeply religious nature. But as we know, ideals can be poison if we take them in large quantities or if we take them incorrectly. In other words, if we take them not as ideals, but as concrete realities. Ideals should inspire our, us to surpass ourselves, which we need to aspire to if we're to be truly human, and which we can never actually do exactly because we are truly human. Ideals are tools for inspiration. They're not realities in themselves. The fact that we have so often missed this point accounts for the sorry history of religion in human civilization. If rightly understood, ideals make us lighthearted and give us a sense of direction. So there are these kind of confusions because we hear these teachings and then wonder, well, how do I actually embody them? When I've spoken about this, one woman came up and asked, she said, is it possible to be too compassionate? To not have any boundaries, to give everything away? Oh, Logan, it's okay. Yeah. I guess in your case, it's not possible to be too compassionate, huh? But is it? Can you be too compassionate? Like that last life when the Buddha didn't become the Buddha. Or a man who came up and said, this is a person who said, I have a lot of anger. Is all my spiritual practice wasted? You know, in the last moment I got angry, did it all disappear? I didn't answer them. But instead, as I would for you, I would invite us to reflect and consider, as the Buddha said to the Kalamas, what makes a wise and free heart? A key problem for us in the West is that the ideals in Buddhist psychology and teachings presume a somewhat healthy sense of self, not too neurotic and not too wounded. And that discounts a lot of us, doesn't it? <laughs> because people who come to spiritual practice in the West, as we've talked about, often encounter, when we look inside, unworthiness, self-judgment, self-hatred, criticism, a lack of nurturance, a kind of neediness. So when Westerners hear Shanti Davis say, don't get angry for a moment or you've wasted your spiritual practice, or abandon all self-cherishing, you know, or as one Burmese teacher said, abandon all concern for your body and just meditate, you know, in this monastery. Often what it can do is reinforce the sense that I'm no good and I should abandon my self-cherishing attitude, you know, and that rather than bringing out a sense of wisdom and compassion, we become more self-judgmental. And we become more in conflict with ourselves, fighting against ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
Yet true compassion requires that we include everyone in its circle, including especially the one sitting here. You can't be compassionate and leave that one important person out. So that it says in the Sanyutta Nikaya of the Buddha, we can search the tenfold universe and not find a single being more worthy of loving compassion than the one sitting here right now. And for many Westerners, doing a year of loving-kindness meditation is a really great practice, especially if it's directed toward themselves. A year of metta, of repeating the phrases of loving-compassion and feeling the feelings for oneself for a whole year. It's hard for some people, and some people can't even imagine it. God, that would be a selfish thing to do, or a stupid thing, or why should I wish myself well, that I be well, or happy, or healthy, or safe, or peaceful? It feels so egocentric. But in some way, if we can't love this one, how can we really love those things in another? Now, one of the terms I tend to avoid in teaching, although Chogyam Trumpa used it there, was the word ego, because it's used in all these different ways. You have to get rid of the ego, get rid of your ego, or get rid of yourself, you know, or the territory of ego. But there's problems with the word ego because it has so many meanings, or getting rid of oneself. The first problem is that you don't have to get rid of yourself because there isn't one to start with. That's the truth. That's the reality. If you look in, you think there's somebody in here, but what we are is like a river or a stream, a changing process, and there is no fixed self. See if you can find one. Secondly, we need a certain kind of healthy ego strength, if you will, from the Western point of view. We need a well-being, a care for ourselves, a certain self-respect. And without that, you really can't practice wisely. And it's true, there can be what one of my teachers called a needy ego, where we get egotistical or narcissistic. Um, and it can go both ways. Um, sometimes there's a kind of inflation, you know, I'll show them and so forth, which is just because we don't feel very good about ourselves. So we inflate ourselves as if to make ourselves bigger, but underneath you know it's like the Wizard of Oz. Back in there, working all the handles and things like that, is this, you know, person who doesn't actually believe um, in themselves in a positive, loving, um, respectful way. Or sometimes it's more explicit. Oh, I'm not worth anything. I'm unworthy. I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'll never make it. anything of myself and spiritual practice, or whatever it happens to be. And I know when I um, do interviews on retreats for people, um, the, the ego forms that come in, this kind of uh, sense of self that I'm speaking about, sometimes come in, somebody comes in, I really know a lot, I've done a lot of meditation, I'll show you how good I am. That's one kind, and one has to learn how to work with that and let go a little bit. The other kind, which is in a certain way equally the unhealthy ego, is the person who comes in and says, I don't know anything. 
I'm always confused. I'm no good. They're filled with self-doubt. And that's actually harder to work with. That's a harder identification in a certain way. Does that make sense to you? But to truly understand no self is neither of those extremes. If we really understand, it becomes liberating for us. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, he says, when one does not understand, uh, let's see, death, life can be very confusing. If our body really belonged to us, it would obey our commands. If we say, don't get old, or I forbid you to get sick, does it obey us? No, it takes no notice. We only rent this house. We don't own it. The Buddha made a distinction between the ultimate truth and the conventional truth. In reality, there is no such thing as a permanent self, nothing solid or unchanging that we can hold on to. Ultimately, there is only the elements, earth, air, fire, and water, consciousness, that combine temporarily. We call this a person, but ultimately there is no one separate here to claim anything. Now, if you want to understand no self, you have to meditate. If you think about it, your head will explode. But once you understand no self, in your experience, the burdens of life will be lifted. Your family life, your work, everything will be much easier. When you see beyond self, you no longer cling to happiness or suffering. And when you no longer cling to happiness, you can begin to be truly happy. Now, if you didn't understand the things that I'm talking about with self and no self and so forth, that's also fine. Because the idea isn't to take some set of teachings and believe it but rather to look like the Kalamas with a, a maturity at what will bring us freedom, what grows within us a sense of compassion, a sense of ease, what helps a wise attention be nourished in our life. For example, we'll continue looking from the point of view of a <clears throat> spiritual maturity, Often in Buddhist teachings, and we'll talk about it here on Monday nights, we say that um, attachment is the cause of suffering. Grasping is the cause of suffering. Second noble truth. Sometimes people even say desire is the cause of suffering. Or as Jesus said, um, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So we should abandon everything, is that right? If we look in our own experience, how much we grasp things, or ideas, or possessions, or people. I mean, try to grasp and control the people you live with, even your children. See if it works, see if they like it. The amount that we grasp and try to control will equal the amount of our suffering. We can begin to study that and learn how to release that. But then there's a question, is there a healthy form of attachment? Is there healthy attachment to a baby? Here we did this baby blessing, where a mother and a child are really bonded in a way that is attached and healthy. 
And what happens to a child if there isn't that attachment from their mother? I think we all know the suffering that comes from that. And is there a healthy form of attachment in relationship or to a piece of land or to the earth itself or to a spiritual practice? And what's the relationship of attachment or non-attachment and commitment? Is it possible to have a deep commitment without grasping? Do you, do you know that experience? To be really committed to something without trying to possess it and own it. <coughs> or we hear the teachings about letting go. Very important teachings. But what does letting go really mean? Does it mean to get rid of? I'm going to let go of this stuff because I hate it. That sounds like judgment to me, doesn't it? And aversion. Or maybe a better way <clears throat> to understand letting go <clears throat> is letting be. Letting go. Here's an extreme. <clears throat> a young monk came to Ajahn Chah's monastery. Very, very idealistic, but also mentally not terribly stable. He decided he was going to meditate and meditate and meditate and get enlightened. And then after about a week of trying to do that as a young monk, we saw him running around the monastery naked um, in a somewhat manic state, saying, yes, I've achieved enlightenment. And then he started to run down the railway tracks toward Bangkok. He was going to tell the king that he'd become enlightened. We had to run after him, unfortunately, and give him some further teachings. He said he had let go of everything. But is that wise letting go? How do we let go? The Buddha said one of the central things that we can learn to let go of, one of the most spiritual acts that you can do, is to let go of your opinions. Imagine that. This I declare after investigation, there is nothing among all opinions and teachings that such a one as I would embrace. The Buddha doesn't take a stand on any particular set of teachings. Seeing misery in adopting opinions and views, searching for truth, I abandon them all. For one who is free from views and opinions, there are no entanglements. For one who is delivered in the heart, there are no conflicts. Who could fight with such a one who carries no opinions? But those who grasp after views and opinions wander about the world annoying people. <laughs> to not have opinions, what does that mean, though, if we really think about it? Because you do need to make discriminating judgments, a discriminating wisdom, what's skillful for yourself, for your children, for your community, for the garden of the earth around you. What does it mean to act with wisdom but not to be caught in our opinions? This isn't really something idealistic. It's something to discover a kind of freedom that's there. You'll know when the opinions are causing you suffering. And you'll know when it's something that you know to be true and important and just that you have to stand up for. And no one can teach us 
what those things are, we have to find that in ourselves. Remember this story, I haven't read it for a while. A letter to an insurance company. In response to your request for additional information, in block number three of the accident reporting form, I had put poor planning. You asked for further details. <laughs> I'm a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new three-story building. When completing my work, I discovered I had 500 pounds of brick left over. Rather than carrying them down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel using a pulley on the side of the building. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof swung the barrel out and loaded the brick into it. Then I went back to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of brick. You will note in block number 11 of the accident reporting form that I weigh 135 pounds. Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rather rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the second floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains the fractured collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my ascent until the fingers of my right knuckle were deep in the pulley. Fortunately, at this time, I regained a presence of mind and realized that this was not the optimal time to let go of the rope. At approximately this moment, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom of the barrel fell out. <laughs> Devoid of the weight of bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 50 pounds. I, I refer you again to my weight in block number 11. As you might imagine, I began a rather rapid descent down the side of the building. This explains the fractured ankles. <laughs> The philosopher Nietzsche said this, not to call a thing good one day longer than it is, is also a source of our human wisdom. Doesn't mean you have to leave it, but you have to attend to it in an honest way. There is a time for letting go, and there's a time for not letting go. And letting go doesn't mean getting rid of, but it really means finding in our own wisdom the capacity to let go when it is time. Desire. Attachment and desire, the cause of suffering, it says. This from, I think it's from Mark Epstein, Buddhist psychiatrist. My experience as a psychiatrist and training in Buddhist practice has given me a unique perspective. I've come to see that our problem is that we don't know what happiness is. We confuse it with a life uncluttered by feelings <clears throat> of anxiety, anger, doubt, and sadness. But happiness is something entirely different. It is the ability to receive the pleasant without grasping and the unpleasant without condemning. So desire there are clearly unhealthy desires. What do we know about desire? No. What are the desires that cause your suffering? What are the key grasping that causes suffering in your life? 
And then do you know how to work with them? How to release them? Or better, how to let them be without following them? Can you take a really strong desire, you know, that's so difficult, and sit with it and be in its presence without suppressing it or judging it or tying yourself in knots or cutting off a part of yourself and without getting lost in it? Have you learned that art? And are there wise or healthy desires? William Blake, who says, those who enter the gates of heaven are not beings who have no passions or who have curbed the passions, but those who have cultivated an understanding of them. My teacher Nisargadot said, the problem with you is that you don't desire enough. You only want these small things, a house, a car, you know, a relationship. Why not want it all? Why not desire the whole enchilada? Or, and I'm sure he would have said, why not desire the whole chapati since it was India, right? <laughs> the trouble is that you don't desire enough. Your desires are too small. So are there healthy desires? Desires to love fully, desires to awaken, desire for enlightenment. Is there a way to practice with desire that leads to something valuable in our life? Is there healthy passion? Creativity, service, awakening, bringing one's gift to the world. Is there a healthy passion? And is there an unhealthy passion? And can you feel the difference in the heart? What about anger? Here's Shanti Davis saying, a moment of anger, and you've blown it. You know, all this spiritual work, you might as well not have done it, according to him. Great sage. What do you do with anger? What do you do with hatred? And are they different? Can you feel the difference between anger and when it turns into hatred? What is the suffering that comes from our anger? the kind of clinging that comes from our anger. Can you feel the pain of that? And if you learn to work with it, do you know how to be in its presence without being afraid or without adding judgment and anger to the anger? And is there a positive form of anger? Are there certain moments when anger is actually skillful or helpful? The Dalai Lama says at one point, there can be a positive anger moderated by compassion and a sense of responsibility that can act as a force to bring about swift and helpful action. But it's dangerous. Can you do it? And nobody else can tell you, actually. There are these images of wrathful Buddhas. Do you have that experience of using that in a skillful way? On the other hand, if we don't have any anger, if we're passive, I mean, I grew up trying to be good, you know? And that was a drag, actually, <laughs> trying to be good all the time. That's because my father was violent and angry, and I was not going to be like him, right? And only later, many years into my meditation and so forth, did I realize I was really angry. And I was very angry at him and lots of other things. And then it took a long time to learn how to accept that anger and begin to work with it and not be afraid of it. 
But it's said that if you want to be able to bless others or to receive a blessing, that you can't get a true blessing from someone unless it's also someone who can give you a curse. And what that means is, if you go to someone for a blessing and all they give out is blessings, but, you, but it's not somebody who could also say something else, it doesn't, it's not so terribly meaningful. But if this is someone who could bless you or curse you and they give a blessing, then that's really a blessing. <laughs> Do you understand that? So that there's this capacity that we have to be alive. And what do we do with that aliveness to the ability to say no? Is there a healthy saying of no? And how do we find that? With what kind of wise attention? Or greed? There's this kind of fearful, insecure, needy greed, the needy ego again, that senses an inner impoverishment and goes around looking to eat up things in the world to try to fill ourselves up with desire. But it's endless, isn't it? You get one thing and then you're fulfilled for a little while and then that addictive sense says, well, I need more of it or bigger or another. And is there an end to that? Fulfilling it. On the other hand, if we pay attention and let ourselves listen and feel in the deepest truth of our being, we discover that what we seek is already present in us, that there is an innate wholeness and an innate completion that doesn't require anything at all. It's a letting go of the small sense of self, the body of fear, the empty self, to feel an openness and a connection with the whole world. Now, the the Iroquois tribes, the Onondaga and so forth, they had a ceremony for young children in which they would bring a child into the center of a circle of the elders and the members of the tribe, Um, and the child would be hungry and thirsty and cold. And first, they would bring the child the most wonderful food and make sure that it had eaten all that it wanted, but there'd be a big mound of food in front of it. And then as soon as the child felt full of food, they would hear cries at the edge of the circle, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And the child would then be taught to pick up the food that they had eaten and felt full and bring it so that others would eat and feel full as well. And then they bring the child back in the center of the circle and bring it the most wonderful things to drink. And after it had felt full of drink, then people would say, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty, out around the circle. And the child would be taught to bring that same drink to the others. I'm cold and the you know, the animal skins and the things that bring warmth were placed around the child. And then others would shout, me too, I'm cold, and the child would happily, because children love to do this when they feel whole. Their next love is to say, you have some too. It's so innate in us. Would bring that to the others. Walking out of the treasury building, I feel generous, says Rumi. Anyone still sober in this weather must really be afraid in this spring weather. So what are we looking for? 
Are we trying to make ourselves into a spiritual person according to some ideal or image that we have? Are we trying to, you know, get rid of who we think we are and make ourselves some, someone else? I hope not. Because we're each born in this unique and totally original way. Five billion or six billion people on the earth, no one is like you. It's phenomenal. There's only one person like you. And you have a particular place and task and gift, if you will, being on this earth. And spiritual life isn't to get rid of oneself, but rather to remember who we really are. To come back in touch with that original wholeness and well-being that you could say is empty and full, is both selfless and at the same time has a wise and compassionate center. And there's a freedom or joy when our practice awakens that an ease that comes, a kind of trust. And sometimes it's expressed by the elders as an absence, as a kind of restraint. We call this the freedom of restraint. And there's a place for restraint in practice. The first simple restraints are not to kill, not to steal, not to lie. Or they speak of the end of greed, the end of hatred, and the end of delusion. And even nirvana is the end of the fire of grasping. So this is one way we can say our practice is to to restrain ourselves from harming other beings. Lying or killing or stealing or or grasping, getting caught in things in in a way that makes suffering. It's a real letting go of the conditions of the world. And the heart then, it says, just as a rock of one solid mass is unshaken by the wind, the snow or the rain, by changes of any kind, so is the heart of one who has truly freed themselves from greed, hatred, and delusion, unshakable and delivered. But if that's misunderstood, it can lead us to a kind of rigidity. I'm no good, I'm a greedy person, I'm still angry, I still get upset, I'm unforgiving, I'm unworthy, and spiritual practice becomes this grim duty to kind of fix ourselves. So the other expression, which is equally true, comes out of love and connectedness and a kind of um, gentility of the spirit, if you will. This from the Tao Te Ching says, humans are born soft and supple, Dead, they're stiff and hard. Plants are born tender and pliant. Dead, they become brittle and dry. Thus, whoever is stiff and inflexible is a disciple of death. And whoever is soft and and yielding is a disciple of life. When you realize that all things change, There is nothing you will try to hold on to. And when you aren't afraid, there's nothing that you cannot achieve. Goes on a little further. Nothing in this world is as soft and yielding as water, yet for dissolving the hard and inflexible, nothing can surpass it. Therefore, the master remains serene even in the midst of difficulty because she has given up struggle 
She can be of help wherever she finds herself. And this expression, instead of saying no greed, no hatred, no delusion, not killing, not stealing, not lying, and so forth, instead of not killing, it's reverence for life. This expression is the love that we share for all that breathes and walks and moves, even the little creatures which love life as we do. In this expression, instead of not stealing, we talk about caring for the things of this earth, being stewards responsible for what we're given. In this expression, instead of saying not lying, we speak about giving voice to the truth, allowing an awakening to come out of our being. Some years ago, a number of the teachers in this community went to visit and study with um, a, a wonderful master in India named Punja. And there was a kind of awakening that happened to some of the teachers who went there because they had been practicing their practice uh, in certain traditional ways where they were really struggling toward enlightenment and trying to get something and trying to get rid of greed and desire and fear and anger and so forth. And when they visited Punja, he looked at them and the first thing he did was to love them. He really loved everybody who came to see him. And then as they talked to him one at a time, he would look them in the eye with tremendous love and care and he'd say, you know, you don't even have to practice anymore. I mean, to become something, you understand. You know, you've done this for so long, for so many lifetimes. Why don't you just say, yes, I am. I am whole. I'm complete. This is true. And he would look with such assurance and such love and such trust into their eyes and into their beings that they said to themselves, hey, I do know. <laughs> and it was a revelation in certain cases to people who'd been trying to change themselves through their meditation and their spiritual life. Does this make sense to you? Guess what? You too know. You really do. And your heart is a good heart because every heart is good when it's born. And it's true, we get caught and lost and afraid in the body of fear. But that's not who you really are. Thinking too well of a person, said Nelson Mandela, often causes them to act better than they might. <laughs> it's also true for yourself, you know. A simple way to practice is to pretend that you're enlightened. Don't struggle to be enlightened. Don't make a big, you know, judgmental program out of it. Pretend that you're enlightened and act that way. And maybe after a while you won't notice the difference. <laughs> I went to my teacher, Ajahn Chah, at one point because he was giving very inconsistent instructions. And I was getting rather frustrated at that inconsistency. And I said, you know, sometimes you teach this, you know, and you say to somebody, relax, open, let go. Just be compassionate with whatever arises. And somebody else, you say, you know, you just have to stop that. Sit there. Don't allow yourself to indulge in those thoughts. Let them go. And I said, you're not consistent at all. This is really hard teaching to follow. I mean, what should I do? And he looked back and he smiled and he said, it's like this. 
There's a road that I know very well, but maybe it's a little foggy or dark. And I see someone walking down this road, and they're about to fall in a ditch on the right-hand side or get lost in a little sidetrack, and I yell out, hey, you there, go to the left. A little while later, I see that same person or another walking down that foggy road, and they're about to get lost in a ditch on the left-hand side or off in a little sidetrack. And I yell out, hey, you there, go to the right. He said, that's all I do. If you get caught in this side, let it go and come back to be here in this moment with things as they are. And if you get caught in that side, acknowledge that, let that go and come back to be here in the moment with things as they are. Rest in your true compassion. Rest in your own innate wisdom and see in a moment when you get caught in fear, in greed, in desire, in anger, not by judgment, but out of your compassion and learn that it's possible to know those truths and to be bigger than them, to really be free. That's the invitation. It's to nirvana. And nirvana is very simple. It's the end of the fire of grasping. It's joy, it's peace, it's ease, it's freedom. And it's here in any moment that our hearts can rest. You are the Buddha. You might as well act that way. So let's sit for a moment. And as you sit quietly, just paying a respectful attention, a few simple questions. What is it that it's time to let go of? And what is it time to let be? And what is it time to nurture and honor and respect in yourself and those around? If you listen to the heart, it knows there is a wisdom in you that is always present, and all you have to do is ask. 
Once there was a layman who came to Ajahn Chah and asked him who Ajahn Chah was, my teacher. Ajahn Chah, looking at this individual and seeing that he was just beginning on his path, pointed to himself and said, this, this is Ajahn Chah. On another occasion, a monk brought the same question. This time, Ajahn Chah studied him for a moment and seemed to see something different in him. The same question asked, who Ajahn Chah was? And he smiled and he answered, Ajahn Chah, there's no such thing. <laughs> uh, one announcement or two, very brief, and a little chant to leave in the evening. And uh, then I'll see those of you who wish to come back in two weeks. Remember, again, there won't be um, classes next week at Spirit Rock. Um, the teachers will be taking classes themselves, which they could use in many cases. <laughs> we. Um, then I'll be back for the, uh, the, the a couple of weeks that follow in... Uh, late June and early July, and then I'll be going away to uh, teach in Europe, and there'll be a series of other teachers. I think um, Lama Paulden will come in July, and Ramdas said he would come a couple of nights toward the end of July. He might come as well with Jai Utal and do some kirtan and, and uh, chanting. Is that all right? <laughs> some people don't like it, but most people do. Um, What else to say? Thank you very much for coming. Uh, I really appreciate, especially the volunteers who help on Monday night. There's really a great crew of folks who've done it for over many, many years. Um, thank you, thank you, yeah. And um, thanks to everyone else as well. So let's do a very simple chant before we go out into the night. Um, in the Buddhist texts, there is the teachings of complete and perfect in wisdom in 80,000 verses and 8,000 verses, and then it's summed up in 800 verses and 80 verses. And for our sake, it's summed up in one syllable. And the reason that it's the teaching of wisdom in one syllable is that this seed syllable is considered the first sound and the last sound, and it's the sound of opening or letting go. So we'll chant the syllable ah. And as we do, also to reflect in your heart, um, there are a few people I know who, one close friend of my own who has a very serious cancer, and another person who came up and spoke of another friend of theirs who just was diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. Um, so to hold in your heart as you chant ah, um, the letting go of the small self and letting ourselves be connected in compassion then with all beings everywhere. Ah, add harmony. Ah,
May your weeks ahead be filled with blessings. May you trust your own innate wisdom. Listen to your heart. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Good night. Drive carefully, and I'd be happy to sign books if people want me to. Mm-hmm. You can sew at home. At home. Yeah, yes. if, if you yes. if you borrow a machine. Yeah. Yes. Uh huh. But I have no way to. I can't come and get it. Mm-hmm. Well, I might be able to bring it to Fairfax. Oh, great. Great. So I'm, I'll call. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.